Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be in verses 14 through 29. That's on page 841 in your pew Bibles. Uh, The title of today's sermon is A Seared Conscience and a Severed Head. Mark 6, 14 through 29. Well, since we've been back in the book of Mark, we've already seen some wild and amazing things in the last three weeks. Uh, We've seen Jesus completely transform a man's life by casting out a legion of demons. We've seen him heal a woman of a blood issue that plagued her life for 12 whole years. We saw him raise a girl from the dead, and we saw him rejected by his own hometown. Finally, at the end of last week's text, uh, we saw him send out his disciples on mission, two by two, with nothing but the necessities, completely relying on God and the power of his spirit to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So, With all of that in mind, the next text, our text for this morning, seems oddly out of place. Uh, It's the story of a drunken, scandalous party resulting in the decapitation of John the Baptist. But uh, I want us to see that the placement of this story isn't random, and it isn't by mistake. Mark is an excellent storyteller who wants us to understand something about John the Baptist and about Jesus and us as it relates to mission. So let's dive in. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. This is the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately, with haste to the king, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. 
And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Whew. Crazy story, huh? To get to what I believe is the main point of this text, I want to actually start in verse 17, a little bit down in the passage, uh, and then come back to the top of the passage after we've understood exactly what happened. So let's start with just understanding who the main players in the story are. First, John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist and Jesus were relatives. In Luke chapter 1, verses 36 and 37, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is told this, verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Uh, that child that's spoken of there in Luke 1 was John the Baptist. And we know that he was a Nazarite from birth. Uh, what this means, according to Numbers chapter 6, is that his hair was never cut. He never touched a dead body or, or drank fermented drink. One commentator says that John the Baptist was uniquely alive to God throughout his entire life. He was a, a prophet who lived an ascetic life in the wilderness, eating grasshoppers and wild honey. Uh, we've already learned in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, that John, same John the Baptist, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's actually the one who baptized Jesus himself in the Jordan River. And he preached a consistent message of repentance his entire life. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, tells us this about him. It says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Christ, he said. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John was a forerunner of Jesus who proclaimed the coming of the Messiah, King Jesus. Finally, this is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 through 14. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, 
Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, I share all of that to simply say, John the Baptist is one of the good guys, so to speak. Now, on to the confusing part. King Herod, who's he? Well, let's actually start with his dad, Herod the Great, as he was known. Herod the Great was the Herod in Matthew chapter 2, at the time of Jesus' birth. He's the one in all of the Christmas plays who had all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under killed. Herod the Great, Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, it's also important for us to know that the name Herod in general in Scripture is synonymous with opposition to the gospel. So, that guy, Herod the Great, from the Christmas play, um, that guy, Herod the Great, had five wives. And from those five wives, had seven sons. So here's kind of their family tree. You've got Herod the Great there at the top, his five wives, and then his seven sons there on the third level. So his seven sons are named Antipater, Aristobulus, Alexander, Herod Antipas, who's the Herod from our text, Archelaus, Herod Philip the first, and Herod Philip the second. Well, when Herod the Great, the guy at the top of the, the food chain there, and when he died, he divided his kingdom between a couple of his boys. Um, so here's kind of a map of how that kingdom broke down. Uh, and later it'll become important for us to understand this kingdom right here, too, Nabatea. Um, so these different colors are kind of how he divided up his kingdom amidst uh, four of his boys specifically. So... Um, one of those boys got a piece of land and was known as Herod Antipas, uh, the Herod from our text today. Um, he was known as Herod the Tetrarch, meaning he ruled one of the four regions that's passed down from his dad. Everyone following so far? Confusing. Um, now it gets complicated. So back to our, our family tree here. Aristobulus, one of Herod the Great's um, sons, he had a daughter named Herodias. So she married Philip I, who's essentially her uncle. This is Jerry Springer type stuff here. <laughs> but it gets worse. Herod Antipas married the daughter of Aretas, who was king of Nabatea that I showed you earlier on the map. So this was most likely a political marriage to bring about relationship between him and a neighboring nation. Uh, this ultimately led to Herod's downfall. So, Herod Antipas married the princess of Nabatea, but he decides to have an affair with his niece, who's already married to her uncle and his brother. All right. So, John the Baptist, who's 
main function was to call the people of Israel to prepare for the coming of their king in repentance, he got a lot more specific on this one. Uh, Instead of just generally calling for repentance from sin, he called out this family and Herod specifically by name. Notice verse 18 in our text today. It says, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You see the pronoun there. John wasn't simply saying it's not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. He's saying it directly to the king. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John wasn't scared. He was bold. He did what is right, even in the face of power, because he knew one that was greater than Herod. He knew that he served an eternal and all-powerful king who would reign forever. John knew where his ultimate allegiance lay, and it wasn't with the culture. It wasn't with King Herod. So, He spoke the truth. Also, while we should all instinctually know that what Herod was doing wasn't right, the law of Moses actually spelled it out for us. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21 says, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. So, John isn't simply giving his opinion to Herod here. He's saying, Herod, It's not lawful. You're in sin. But look at verse 17. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. While I'm sure that King Herod here was a little irked by John, he seemed to have imprisoned John because of Herodias who seems to be the most bothered here. Look at verse 19. It says, And Herodias had a grudge against him, meaning John the Baptist, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Strange, right? John is a no-name, politically speaking, anyway. He's behind bars in a prison. Herod, on the other hand, is a king. Who should fear who here? And yet, the text tells us that Herod feared John. Why? It says, knowing that he was a righteous holy man. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, says this. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Here we go, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, 
even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, as R.C. Sproul reminds us, he says, the single greatest restraint on evil that God has placed in this world is conscience. You see that? At this point in the Gospel of Mark, Herod still has somewhat of a conscience. It's not totally seared and hardened yet. And Mark tells us that when Herod heard John the Baptist, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. In one sense, John was probably the only person in Herod's kingdom that actually told him the truth. He was probably the only real man that Herod ever met. Everyone else was afraid of Herod. And so they told him whatever he wanted to hear. It's kind of like the emperor with no clothes. No one wanting to say the quiet part out loud. But not John. John spoke the truth. He didn't care whether he was liked or not. He was God's man and not Herod's. Everyone has a conscience. Truth and holiness have amazing power over conscience. Goodness is terrifying to evil. J.C. Ryle, an older theologian, says it this way about John the Baptist here. He says, A friendless, solitary preacher with no other weapon than God's truth, disturbs and even terrifies a king. So, Christian, do you understand this? You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't even have to have what the world understands to be power. Truth, speaking the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, Holiness, a life that adorns the truth of that gospel. That's what you need. Fearlessly speaking the truth in love. Fearlessly live a life of holiness. That's what gains a hearing. Regardless of the outcome, your work won't be in vain. So, here we go. That's all the setup for verse 21. Verse 21, it says, But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Herod, being the prideful person that he is, has all of the important people over for his birthday. They're all the men who constantly stroked his ego the ones who essentially held up his power. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that these kinds of parties were kind of a regular thing for the Herod family, and that when they happened, everyone knew exactly what to expect. They, they knew what was going to happen there. Drunkenness and male entertainment. Typically, uh, the dancing was performed by what are known as the hatari, 
which were professional court dancers, usually prostitutes. But not this time. Herodias is manipulative to the gills. In place of dancing prostitutes, she sends in her daughter, who Josephus tells us is named Salome. The word here that Mark uses for girl lets us know that she's in her mid-teens. You see how sick this is? Now, I just want to pause here and lament that, unfortunately, this scene isn't hard to imagine. Unfortunately, this scene, minus the beheading thing, is all too familiar in our day and age. Guys together getting drunk, young women looking sensual, perfect storm for all kinds of bad stuff. But here's the deal. The men in this room, and in the room in our text, and the men in our culture today, encourage this kind of thing. There's an appetite for it. Our viewing habits, and I'm not just speaking of pornography here, what we watch on primetime television, at the movies, on Amazon, what we give approval to, signals to advertisers, producers, actors, directors. Keep the dancing girls coming. Keep the sexual innuendo coming. It's entertaining. We'll pay for it. Without the sensuous lust of the men in this room, John the Baptist's head would never have ended up on a platter. The men in this room encouraged what happened. So let's just stop for a moment and lament this. Let's condemn this. Let's repent of this. Verse 22 and 23. It says, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vouched to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. So Herod has gathered all the important people. They're drunk. She dances. And the tipsy king falls right into the trap. Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. While up to half my kingdom was a figure of speech, kind of like we might use the phrase, to the moon, he made this vow publicly. All the important men in the room heard him say this out loud. You can imagine their drunken response. All right, Herod, you're the man. Way to go. What's she going to choose? Maybe a golden statue of herself in the courtyard? A palace of her own? Something beautiful brought in from Rome? Little did they know that the trap had already been set and sprung. Look at verses 24 and 25. It says, And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, 
I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. First, do you see how calculated and manipulative Herodias is? This was obviously extremely premeditated. She'd been stewing on this one for a while. She didn't have to think for a second when Salome walked in. There was no, hmm, what should I ask for? Let me think. No, uh, immediately. The head of John the Baptist. Her sin is pretty gross. But this is what sin does. She clung, she lived, to, to, she lived in sin, clung to that sin with white knuckles, refusing to repent. When confronted with truth from John the Baptist, she harbored a grudge that led to this plan and eventually to murder. Sin isn't a playful thing. It never remains little. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.9 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 5.6. And his point is this in both of those texts, that sin spreads like leaven in a loaf of bread and like gangrene in a human body. It'll kill you spiritually. So, the men in this room in our text are, are wicked and sinful. They're culpable for their actions. Herodias is the same. And Salome, the dancing daughter. While she does simply, to, to, she appears to simply be a pawn in her mother's wicked plan, and that's tragic, we should lament that, She's also culpable. She's responsible for her own actions. She's a willing accomplice. She was willing to use her sensuality to gain control over people. Was willing to ask for a man's head. She even added the gruesome part about on a platter. She's willing to take part in the game. So, teenagers... Hear this loud and clear. You are responsible for your actions. Peer pressure isn't an excuse. So be careful how you present yourself, what you wear, what you post on Facebook. It's not harmless. How you handle yourself isn't a joke or a game. The point is this. Everyone in the room in our text is guilty for their actions. No one gets off the hook here. And Herod was stuck. Look at verse 26. It says, And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his words to her. So, he had, had made a promise in front of all of his buddies. He didn't want to behead John. He actually enjoyed his weekly chats with John, convicting as they were. He knew that John was a righteous man. But if he didn't follow through, he would lose face. He'd be embarrassed by the very people that he so desperately needed to impress. This was a moment of conscience. Would he 
do the right thing? Or would he please people? On one side, taking an oath or making a promise is a serious deal. In our day and age, unfortunately, promises don't mean much at all. People make promises to each other, to family members, to the church, to God. Forget about them before lunch. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, it says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should make a vow and not pay. So take the promises that you make seriously. Yet, the Bible also shows us that some vows are unlawful and shouldn't be fulfilled. R.C. Sproul reminds us that in the book of Judges, this guy named Jepheth, he's preparing for, for battle, vowed to God that if his army triumphed, he would sacrifice the first thing that came out of the door of his house when he returned home. He did win this battle, but when he came home, it was his daughter who walked out the door. Jepheth should have repudiated his foolish vow on the spot, for it was apparent that he had bound himself to do something which God forbids. Instead, he followed through and sacrificed his daughter. Same kind of situation here. Herod's vow was unlawful. It was evil in the sight of God. So what would he do? Would he please God? or feed his own ego and pride. A conscience hung in the balance. Verses 27 and 28. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. John the Baptist's head was severed. Herod's conscience was seared. In verse 20, there was a glimmer of hope for Herod's conscience and his soul. He put off his decision to follow God's word. Once this moment in the party happened, the decision was forced on him when he was least likely and least ready to make it. While we all won't be put in the same context as Herod, I hope, same is true for us today. When confronted with giving up our sin and following God's word, we all have a decision to make. We must deal with it swiftly, because we may not be able to deal with it later. Second, I want us to notice that Herod seems to be the prisoner of one particular sin that doomed him. In his case, it was sexual sin. As we see in our text, that sin doesn't stay in isolation. It opened up the door for a rash vow and pride and then murder. In refusing to deal with his sin swiftly, he headed down the slippery slope of no return. Follow this. All of this happens. and He beheads John. He's exceedingly sorry, the text tells us. But then, 
kind of back out of the flashback a little bit to the top of our text today, verses 14 through 16. It says this. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. What is it that he heard? He heard about the disciples being sent out and these great things being done in Jesus' name. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He's certain of it. You see what happened? His conscience has moved to one of guilt. In the ancient world, there was a popular idea that resurrections were signs of impending judgment. He's convinced in his spirit that John the Baptist has come back to judge him. Then, look where Herod ends up at the end of Jesus' life. Luke chapter 23, verses 7 through 12. Luke chapter 23, verses 7 through 12. It says, and when he, meaning Pilate, when he learned that he, Jesus, belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, the same Herod from our text, sent, them over, sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he, meaning Jesus, made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. So by this time, all Herod wants to see from Jesus is a party trick, a sign, or a miracle. Jesus had nothing more to say to him. So the text tells us that Herod treated him with contempt, mocked him. So Herod moved, as Kent Hughes notes, from a stirred conscience, when John's preaching to him daily from the prison. So he moves from a stirred conscience to a violated conscience there in the room to a guilty conscience, thinking that John the Baptist has risen from the dead, to a dead conscience, where he's there mocking Jesus. Here's the truth. Unless we kill sin, sin will kill our conscience. Unless we obey God's word, the time may come when we mock God's Son. What a tragedy. As the Bible so often does, this story presents human ugliness as ugly. It doesn't glorify sin. It presents it accurately. You're meant to read this story, and I hope you did this morning. You're meant to read this story and cringe. Then you're meant to say, I have some of this ugliness too. 
And though John the Baptist is dead, he still speaks. If you're convicted by this story, John the Baptist would call you to repent and believe in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Let it go. No matter how hard it is, trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've done what Herod did and worse. Jesus died to save sinners like you and me. He lived a perfect life in every single way. He died on the cross to pay the penalty that each and every one of us owe. And when we trust in Jesus, we get credited with his perfection. He gets credited with our debt. It's not too late to make that decision, even right now in this moment. So, don't simply be fascinated or perplexed with Jesus. Trust him. Obey his commands. That's the message of this text for unbelievers. But I told you that the main point of this text had to do with its context in the book of Mark. Remember verse 12 from last week? Jesus sent out his disciples and they went out proclaiming that people should repent. Who does that sound like? John the Baptist, right? Well, how did that go for him? John the Baptist spoke truth to power and it cost him his head. So many people today think that they're speaking truth to power because they're at a keyboard or they're a thumb thug on their phone. They can post something to Twitter. That costs you nothing. You're really in no actual danger for blogging about something. I'm not saying you shouldn't speak out against actual sin or injustice if you feel called to that online. I'm simply saying that that isn't speaking truth to power in the same way that John the Baptist did. John the Baptist knew the stakes, and he spoke anyway. It cost him his life. So the question is, are you willing to follow in his footsteps? That's why Mark includes the story right here where he does. Jesus wants his disciples and us to know that following him, obeying him, isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. There will be a cost to following Jesus. The good guys. Like John, don't win every skirmish. So Christian, know this. You won't be spared from every heartache or from every suffering. What Herod saw in Jesus reminded him of John. What happened with John eventually happened to Jesus. And so it often will with us. We're not promised any great earthly success. But we're called to follow Jesus. Costly ministry is the example set for us by John and by Jesus. In Luke chapter 18, verses 28 through 33, 
Jesus says this in response to Peter and to the rest of his disciples. He says, and Peter said, see Jesus, we have left our homes, we've given up stuff, followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And talk, talking, or taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So, serve God with what you have, no matter what it costs you. There's really no other way to serve faithfully. That's what it means to be on mission as God's people, together. That's our calling because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the while knowing that Jesus rose from the dead. You may lose here on earth. That's a small price to pay when you win in eternity. And that's the message that we get of John the Baptist's life here in Mark chapter 6. Let's pray.